Um, yeah, so we've kind of been in this series on the life of Jesus. We've, it's actually a lot to cover, so we're in our 10th week of that. We've covered a lot of ground so far up to this point, and uh, these are kind of some of the things that we've covered. There was a section that we did on specifically on the prophecies of Jesus. So what, what made Jesus who he is? How did we know that he was who he said he was? And how did we identify that in him and when he kind of showed up? So we kind of covered a section on prophecies. Um, we also covered a section on miracles. So like the dramatic things that Jesus would have done on his time on earth is like, did he really do that? Yeah, he did. Why would he do that? How did that happen? What was, what was actually going on within that miracle? Some, some of those highlight moments, things that Jesus would be known for. And now we're actually on a section that's kind of around the parables or Jesus, of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. And what we kind of mean by a parable is a story or an illustration, things that Jesus would have used to illustrate his teachings. And um, it's actually fascinating. Um, I'm super excited to jump into it. Josiah last week kicked us off with one of Jesus' teaching, uh, teachings on two lost sons, two sons who kind of take two different paths and uh, both of them are lost and in different ways. And just how both of them kind of need this grace and, and this fatherly love um, unconditionally and, and how we see that in God. So it's an incredible message. Love Josiah given that last week. And actually, we're going we're gonna to jump uh, even deeper into Jesus' teachings this weekend. And something that's fascinating, you'll actually see when uh, Jesus is teaching or someone asks him a question, as he's explaining stuff, what you're going to notice, actually, is um, how hard it is for people to embrace it. Like what Jesus, Jesus ends up doing is he gives really difficult teachings. They're hard to apply all the implications of them. And what you'll find more often than not is people who are interacting with him trying to find a loophole or a shortcut out of the teaching. And what they're actually doing is, they're, what I mean by a loophole or a shortcut is like they're looking for an opportunity to avoid an unpleasant responsibility. They're looking for an out, right? They're like, okay, that sounds really difficult and unpleasant and I don't want to do that. Is there another way? Is there something else I can do? How can I get around the system, or what you're saying, Jesus. And uh, it happens all the time. He, Jesus is just, uh, he has very difficult, life-altering things that he teaches. And uh, we're going to be diving into a story today where that exactly happens. Someone tries to find a, a shortcut, a loophole around something he says. But actually, as I was even thinking about that, I just thought um, about how easy it is for me to create loopholes, like to find shortcuts in life. And I'll give you some examples. I was thinking we have our toddler who's, who's about to be two. And uh, one of the things you do in that, that first year of life after they're one is you begin to like start thinking, okay, I got to start teaching them some stuff. I got to teach them their alphabet or their letters or their colors or their numbers and all that stuff. And um, you know, it's difficult. You're teaching this little person who doesn't know very much, like, you know, very foundational stuff. And it's like, how in the world am I going to do that? So let me tell you what to do. And it's actually a great shortcut. Um, what you do is you go get a Netflix subscription and you turn on this TV show called Super Y. And all it does is just talk about the alphabet the whole time. And just the next one will go and the next one will go. And after a week, your kid knows the alphabet. And all of a sudden people think you're incredible parents and you've got all this stuff figured out. And you're like, yes, I do. It's called Netflix. Um, and it's this wonderful thing. And it's just amazing. I'm like, this makes my life so much either. I don't have to do the flashcards. I don't have to like repetitively, you know, Super Y did that for me. I love it. Um, and, and being in seminary, another, another way I've seen like how I have to take shortcuts is you get the workload for your class and you get the syllabus. And it's like, you will read a thousand pages every week and your books are like this thick. And you're like, how in the world do I do that? So you get the book and you're like, I gotta read it this week. And you're just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speed read it. And you're like, I'm getting that. I saw the heading. All right, got it, got it, got it. It's done. A thousand pages. I got it. <laughs> That's my shortcut. That's my out for like, how in the world do I manage this workload? 
And I think as we kind of start to think about that, and I was thinking about just other ways that we all do this, right? I'm not the only one. We all kind of find the shortcut. We find the loophole. Um, I was thinking about some ways, like if you are in college and you've got that paper and it's super long, you know, you got to write a 12-page paper for your final, and then all of a sudden you look at the syllabus and you're like, they didn't say how many spaces it has to be. I can like triple space this paper and make the font 18 point. All of a sudden, your one page of content is 12 pages now. And you're like, okay, uh, that's one way to do it. Another way I was thinking is uh, just even as I graduated from college and started to get a job and you've got expectations, you've got to be at work at this time, 8.30. 8.30 is when you've got to start doing work. So um, what do you do? You start to kind of start running a little late, a little late. Life gets crazy. And all of a sudden, your boss starts calling you. It's like, hey, it's 8.30. Where are you? And it's like, hey, um, yeah, I answered some emails this morning while I was up on my phone, and now I'm on my way, so I kind of did 15 minutes of work already. It's like you're trying to figure it out because life's just getting chaotic, right? And I even think about um, when, I was, when I was a kid, like in high school, and you start getting responsibility, and you get curfew. Curfew is 11 o'clock, and, uh, you know, 11 o'clock is when you're supposed to be, you're not home, and mom and dad call you. They're like, where are you? It's 11 o'clock. It's like, I'm on my way home. I'm on my way home. And it's like, no, no, no. I said curfew is 11. You are home by 11. And we just do, we do it all the time, right? It's just, it's just the way life is. And um, really what we're talking about, they're, they're very simple, lighthearted things, not a lot of consequences, just little ways that we tweak the system here, here and there. And um, it's really not a big deal. It, it's not. Those are just minor things. But um, really, loopholes and shortcuts, we can actually take them to a whole nother letter, a le- level where they get like very serious. It can actually be kind of sobering when we begin to feel the weight of some of the ways that we take these shortcuts. And uh, I was actually thinking about that. I was like, wow, actually, you know, those are little examples. How can this begin to affect us in really like negative ways? Like it's, it's getting out of control. And so I was thinking about this time when I was in high school. And um, you know, if you are in high school, you're going to totally track with this because it's like there's only two things you want when you're a high school. You want a phone and you want a car or you want to be able to drive. And if you can have both of those things, you're like super set. And what I ended up being doing is just an irresponsible high schooler that I was. I started trying to mix the two. You know what I'm saying? I started doing the whole texting and driving thing and I started kind of compromising and shortcut here and shortcut there. And it's like, well, I'm just looking, I'm looking down at the phone as long as I would at like the radio, if I was going to change the radio, or if a deer was over in that yard over there. I'm just looking for a minute, and I'll look back up, and so I, began, I started to get good at it. You know, I started to get good at this little shortcut, and, or at least I thought I was. And uh, I grew up in West Virginia, so um, all the roads there are basically curves. There's no straight roads. <laughs> so you're always turning one way or the other. And I was starting to get good at it. I was coming home from work or school one day. I'm looking down at my phone, I'm taking the curve, looking down, taking the curve. And um, when I looked back up, I looked down just a little bit too long. When I looked back up after a curve, I saw a car. Not too far from me. You know, stopped, had his blinker on there, trying to turn. And I'm like, oh no, I'm not going to be able to stop until I'm going to hit them. So I did what any reasonable high schooler would do, and I completely panicked. And <laughs> what I ended up doing actually was trying to drive off the road and like miss them. I was like, I don't want to hit them, so I'm just going to try to miss them. So that was the only thing I could react to do. I, I swerve off the road, still hit them on the end of their bumper, and I drive into this person's yard, off the road into their yard. And I'm like totally shaken up, and I'm like, what have I done? I am dead meat. This, it was so nonsensical for me to do that. I was so dumb that I would do that. And now I'm like facing the consequences of it. My car's destroyed, their car's destroyed. I get out of the car, and I look back up at where the tire marks are, like the tread marks into the yard. And what do I see about 10 feet to the right but a telephone pole? 
And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I would have turned a second sooner, gone. And then you begin to look over and you see the car, you know, it's bumped up. And the family's all right. The family's okay. I just nicked the car. But they're, they're like, what in the world just happened? And they're getting out and they're getting kids out of the car. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm a moron. What have I just done? And the weight of that, you know, it's like, it's like what in the world was going on? This is, this is not a little loophole anymore. This is not a little shortcut I can take. This has serious life-altering implications. And the weight that you feel when you're sitting in the cop car and they're saying, so what exactly happened here? It's like, well, I was looking down, being irresponsible. You know, it's like, I never want that to happen again. It's just traumatic, and you're like, I, did, I had no idea something that insignificant have such a drastic effect. And I think it's really easy to justify, though, right? Because life just takes so much time and energy to manage it. Like, we just get pulled in every direction, and all we can really think to do to manage it is to just create the shortcut here and to figure out how we can lose a little bit of time here and get to the next thing, and it's just normal. It's like the default. I'm not, I'm not trying to point that out as a negative thing necessarily, but whenever it becomes life-threatening, whenever it becomes serious, we at least have to take a closer look at that, right? We at least have to take a closer look at that. And even though it can seem like a good solution in the moment, we need to see actually the implications of it. So I want us to ask this question this morning, is actually, what if shortcuts and loopholes caused us to miss what matters most? What if these shortcuts and loopholes cause us to miss what matters most? And we're actually going to dive into this teaching of Jesus today, and, and that's what we're going to see, is actually this, this guy's going to be missing something that's very important. And it's actually kind of the character, the heart of God. And his, his desire to kind of work the system and just find a way out and not embrace the full implications of what Jesus says, he's going to be missing the point. So Jesus is going to talk to him. We're going to be opening up to Luke 10, 25 through 37. Jesus is going to talk to this guy and he's going to try to find the loophole and he's going to be like, I'm not going to let you have that. I'm going to tell a parable. I'm going to tell a story. I see what's going on here and I'm not going to allow you to miss the point. So Luke 10, if you uh, want to grab a Bible in the chairs, just turn to page 843 in those. You can put your name in that Bible, take it home with you if you don't have one. But we're going to be in Luke 10, and uh, this story is commonly uh, called the Good Samaritan story, the good neighbor. Um, and uh, a lot of people, I think, would recognize it if you've uh, read any of Jesus' teachings. It's a very uh, common, famous one. So we're going to be in Luke 10, 25 through 37. So let's start at verse 25. And I'm going to stop us a little bit along the way as we kind of start seeing some stuff and point a few things out that I think are big implications. But starting in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he, uh, he said, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So pause there for a second. You've got this expert in the law, a religious expert who's got it down. And actually what's super interesting, you would think he knows the answer, and he actually does. He gives the correct answer of how do I inherit eternal life, love God, and love other people. And he gives the right answer, but the implications begin to affect him. And this will happen in Jesus' teachings. It won't happen in a normal story, but in the fact that Jesus is there, you get special insights into people's motives. You get to see what's going on in their head and their heart, right? And you actually see it here. The first verse, it says that he was trying to test Jesus. He knew the answer. He's asking the hard question. 
He's asking something difficult, and he's trying to pin Jesus down. And then you see, actually, in verse 29, he's trying to justify himself. Or some translations I saw actually said, trying to find the loophole, and I was like, fascinating, that's crazy. He's just trying to find a way to ignore and dismiss people. He's not trying to lean into this and say, what does it mean to have a relationship, God? And what does it actually mean for me to have eternal life? He knows the answer, and he's trying to find a shortcut. It's incredible. So, so Jesus ends up telling a story, and he says this. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And uh, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was like a whole day of, like, of travel. I don't know if you've ever been on the road for like a whole day or something like that. But understanding this context, it's a dangerous road. Like you didn't, you didn't travel this alone. You were there all day. It was kind of a risk. This, this would be a normal thing, being attacked, like if you were by yourself. And maybe just a way to think about it right now, it's like kind of when you hear people who end up going like backpacking or camping on their own and they get injured or they get attacked or something like that in some tragic story. They're alone and abandoned. It's like, well, man, yeah, you went camping, you went backpacking by yourself. You know, of course that was going to happen or at least you would expect that to happen and now you're on your own. I don't know. Sometimes you hear this amazing survival story and sometimes you hear hear the terrible result of no hope coming. And so you kind of hear this and you wonder, yeah, this guy is on this road by himself. He's probably left for dead. But what ends up happening is fascinating. In verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And what you're seeing here, if you translate that back to kind of like this backpacking illustration, it's like the park ranger comes by. Of all people, like, thank goodness he's there, he's supposed to be there. He doesn't do anything. And then like some expert trailsman comes by and totally knows what this would be like and doesn't do anything either. It's like, what in the world is going on there? You begin to read a little bit more about a Samaritan. As he traveled, came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him or he felt compassion. And he went to him and bandaged uh, his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after them, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus gives the same command, go and do likewise. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. The guy's trying to, this expert in the law is trying to move the focus off of himself onto the people who he's called to love. He's trying to move it off himself. He's trying to find a loophole and excuse to dismiss those people who he doesn't especially feel compelled to reach out to. So I'm gonna walk us through three different things that I feel like jump out at this passage that we're kind of being compelled to do so that we kind of see how do we not miss, that, miss the heart of God? How do we embrace what Jesus is trying to do here? And the first thing I want you to see is that God has placed people in our life for a reason. God has placed people in our life for a reason. And that's not a light statement. That's actually a very deep statement. It's not mystical or anything. It's the fact that God's at work. And I just want you to understand the context here. What we're talking about is someone who we don't really know much about, someone who gets attacked on the road. We don't know anything about him. We don't know why he gets attacked. We don't know who he, what he's like or who he is. He's a nameless man. And it doesn't matter. He's just a person in need. He's a person in need. 
And the fact that these people come by, this priest and a Levite, the language in the Bible is that it's luckily or by chance someone happened to be going by. They're kind of put there for a reason, and they do nothing about it. And I think it's interesting because Jesus doesn't tell us why they do nothing about it. He doesn't say because they were lazy or because they were rude or they had something important to do. No, he leaves that up for our thought. I think he does that is because there's all sorts of excuses we make when we're trying to dismiss those people in need. And some of the things I thought of, things that maybe have popped into my brain, maybe they popped into yours, or at least the fact of like, well, they got themselves into this mess and get themselves out, right? I mean, this guy's on the road by himself on a dangerous, well, what is he thinking? And you think they dug their own grave. Maybe you even begin to think things like, you know, they're probably gonna die anyway. There's nothing I can do. Like, I can't, I can't help this guy. I'm not a medic. I'm just a priest, a Levite, or whatever. Maybe there's, you feel like, I can't do anything to help this guy. The situation's hopeless. Or maybe you even think, especially here, like, helping them might put me at risk. Like, if this is what happened to this guy, if I hang around here too long, like, I'm in trouble. I gotta get out of here. And even things like, I'm too busy, or I don't have time, or I got something else important to go to, or someone else will do this. Someone else's responsibility. It's easy to make any excuse in the world. The fact is what they did. It's not the matter of motivation because we can find all sorts of shortcuts and loopholes, right? For every different situation, every different need. But the Samaritan is the one who actually has pity or feels compassion. And what we mean by that when the Samaritan has compassion is he sees a problem off in the distance and he could pass by it or he could walk toward it and make it his own. He could take a concern that's of nothing to him and invite it into his own life. Wow, it's totally different because what we see is he's the only one who does that. We see numerous people walk by and the world is full of people who will walk by and do nothing about a problem. That's, that's the default. That's just the normal. But few are the people. Who are the people who will actually recognize that and do something about it? And so I think some of the way that we put skin on the fact that God puts people on our life for a reason comes from Ephesians 2.10. And Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He prepared in advance for us to do. So what we're seeing is that when God makes you and saves you, he actually orchestrates things to happen in your life for purpose so that you can be invited into the opportunity to do good. It's not to guilt trip you. It's not to make you be afraid that you're gonna miss it, but God's at work. It's not just you making choices and navigating, but God's bringing stuff into your life because he wants to use you. He wants to work in and through you. And God won't allow us to find a loophole for people who are directly in our path, you know? Directly in our path, because the, the matter of the fact is, is you don't have to go into the ditch or on the side of the road or to the fringe to find people in need. Like people in need are all around us. They might even be like even in our own house. People in need, people suffer all the time around us. And we're purposefully there to offer help and hope. And this is kind of leading us to the second thing I want you to see is that everyone experiences need at different times and in different ways. Everyone experiences need at different times and in different ways. And um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, this guy who's in the story, the man who gets kind of attacked by the robbers, he has a very immediate physical need. Like he's injured, he's on the brink of death. And you even think about other physical needs like sickness. And that's something you can like 
externally see on someone. Or you begin to think about things like even financially, someone who's in poverty or in debt. Like you can see that. You can see it. It's external. It's very, you're very aware of it. Okay, but is that the only kind of needs we feel? Are those the only kind of needs we feel? Really broadly, we feel all sorts of needs, things that might be internal, things that might be like emotional, things like pain and loss and guilt and shame and rejection. All those things are real needs, right? That's a real need. When you feel that, it feels like you're injured. And even as you begin to understand God and see the spiritual needs of people, the fact that I feel distant from him, I don't feel like I can have a relationship with him. I don't feel at peace with him. I don't feel like that's existent. That's a real need. People have that and it needs to be resolved. And when you begin to broaden your definition that way, you begin to realize, wow, sometimes pain and hurt and need doesn't look the way I always expect it to. It doesn't always look the way I expect it to. So it's very important that we actually get a robust, big picture of what need actually is. Because if we do not, this is what will happen. We'll begin to think those people over there have need, but I don't. Those people have need and I don't. And really, when we broaden that picture, we begin to realize I'm those people. Those aren't those people. I'm those people. They're no different from me. It may be different. It may be the same. But all of a sudden, need is a universal experience, right? And to be aware of that is actually a very healthy thing. And, and if we are trying to find a, a shortcut out of that and to be like, no, I don't have need, or at least not in the same way, they're different, um, I think what we actually do is we realize we have a deeper heart issue. We have a deeper heart issue, and this is it. It's that do I see value and worth in people who are different than me? Do I see value and worth in people who are different than me, who are messy and needy and broken? And one of the things I want us to, to look at just to enlighten uh, this perspective is in Genesis 1.27 when we're learning about who God is. Uh, it said that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And what we're seeing is the fact that when God makes us people, individuals, he stamps us with worth and value because we're in his image. That's what it means to be made in his image is we have inherent worth, dignity, value, and beauty as his creation. And we don't get to decide what has value and worth because he's already said what does. And even the fact that God goes on to save us when we become messy and broken shows you're of worth and value and worth saving to me. And it's God who determines someone's worth and value, not us. And I'm afraid that when we devalue others, even just because like the Samaritan, this Samaritan is like the polar opposite of the people hearing the story. They're different religiously, they're different economically, they're different culturally. It's like if there was anyone to devalue in the story, it's them. And instead, they end up being the hero. And it tugs on the heart. It's like, what, you picked them to be the hero, Jesus? Why not the priest? Why not the religious guy? It's because it's talking about the heart. It's asking that question, where are you putting your value? And to God, everyone has need, right? To God, he sees everyone as needy. And in some ways, he's never been there. God's ne God is God. He's never had that kind of a need. And so he doesn't have to reach out. He could find the excuse, the loophole, the shortcut, but he doesn't. He chooses to intervene and rescue anyway. And it's incredible because if we don't see our own need, the fact that God would show mercy on us and even that other people would show mercy on us when we're in need and we're broken and we're messy, we have to see that we're not so different from those we come across, right? Everyone experiences need. 
The third thing I want you to see, or at least be compelled by, is I want you to be the one who actually runs toward those in need. I want you to run toward people in need, not away. Not away. Because I think it's really easy when it becomes overwhelming. Like, I've got to follow all of this. This is... I don't think I can follow all of this. That seems like something a radical Christian would do. Like, can I just do like the bare minimum? What are the essentials of being a Christian? I can maybe do that. Give me the bare minimum. And we kind of look for the, what's the essentials? I don't know if I could do it all. And actually, that's what happens here. He's saying, what is the purpose of the law? Love God, love others. It doesn't get much simpler than that. And he still tries to find a shortcut out of the simplest version of the law. It's incredible. And um, what he's doing is he's just totally missing the point that he's asking the wrong question. He's looking for a cop-out, and really he should be asking, how can I actually love that person in need? What would it take to love the guy half dead on the side of the road? What's, what, what does it mean to express love to that person? Not the bare minimum. And I don't want you to feel guilty about this part because I, I'm not saying And Jesus isn't saying that you have to comprehensively solve people's issues. You don't have to meet all their needs. You can't do that. I can't do that. We can't do that. No, he has to be a part of that too. And even the fact that he would invite the innkeeper into this process, he has to make a handoff. And let me give you a little bit more skin on this. In James 1.27, James is giving a lot of wisdom for people to navigate these messy life decisions. And he's saying religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows, people in need, deep need, relational need, physical need in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And what James is saying is that our, one of our greatest callings is actually to step out and meet people's needs and meet them these orphans and widows, the biggest people he can think of, these people always have need. But he's not saying you just have to bend over backwards and do whatever they want for you. No, he's saying you enter into the broken, messy situation, into the world, but you don't become polluted by it. So there's a way to do this where you actually can express love and meet need, but it not overwhelm your own life. Not in a way that's gonna pull you down with it, but in a way that you enter in and are of help and bring them back up and you're both okay. You're both okay. It's not just an endless, whatever they want, you have to do it. No, there is ways to actually love people who are messy and in need. And I think since that default is to find the loophole and the shortcut, it's way easier to move away from people. It's way easier to distance ourselves from those who... <laughs> who have problems, you know? Especially when they're different from us. It's so much easier to write them off or to find the excuse when they're so different from me. And I don't want to enter that into my own life. It's natural to do that. But something I want you to notice, actually, is that Jesus doesn't answer the question that the religious expert asks. It's fascinating. So this happens all the time in Jesus' teaching. If you get confused, it's most of the time because Jesus isn't actually answering the question that was asked. So the guy asked this in verse 29. He says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this whole long story and doesn't answer his question. He says, who was the neighbor in verse 36? Who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor? And what you begin to see is that It's a a matter of identity. Who am I? It's not about the person who I'm helping in need. It's actually the identity of the one who intervenes. So now the question isn't who is my neighbor. The question is, what kind of person am I? What kind of person am I becoming? Am I becoming a person of love? Am I a person of love? 
And when you begin to experience mercy, you actually feel that. You begin to treat others the way you want treated. And actually what we see the Samaritan doing is going above and beyond his call of duty, right? He's doing so much for this person in need. He's doing everything he knows. And he's not doing everything, again, remember that. But he's doing everything he can to show care and love and hospitality to this person. And as you begin to try to like navigate, well, how, how does this actually look? We're talking at it from a pretty high level, right? We're just looking at some, some great things to take away from this. What does that actually look like in my life? I think what I want you to do is think about people who intervened in your life when you were in need. So identify those needs, those deep moments where you're like, man, I felt so alone and abandoned and walked by. And what did people do to you to show you care and compassion? And once again, it's not gonna be comprehensive. I don't think they came in and fixed all your problems, right? No, but they loved you. So what does that look like? You can, you can model that, right? You can do that. You've seen other people do that to you. Now putting skin on it, you're just trying to do those things that actually express care and compassion to someone in need. It's much more manageable, right? It's a lot less daunting. And we've been asking this question, so what, uh, in the series. And what I don't want you to leave with today is like guilt and discouragement and, oh, I've missed all these opportunities and I'm terrible and God's disappointed in me. No, no, no. What I actually want you to see is the fact of opportunity. I want you to be encouraged that God wants you to be a part of the process. He could do it all on his own, but he invites you to be a part of the process. It's incredible. That's inspiring to me. That's not like a guilt trip. That's like, a, I want you to be a part of expressing my love to those who need it the most. And this is kind of the so what thought I want us to sit on for a minute. You might be someone's only hope of rescue. You might be someone's only hope of rescue. And if you know that, if you could know that, that would change everything, wouldn't it? If you knew someone was going to come by later and fix the problem, all of a sudden you're less motivated. But if you're the last person, if you're the only person, that changes everything. See, God has placed people in our life for a reason. And sometimes we can relate to what people are going to. And it's going to be very few of the people who actually move toward people in need and very many of the people who actually run away from that. And what I want you to see is the question we ask at the beginning is what if these loopholes and shortcuts cause us to miss something pretty important? I think what we're missing is the heart of God. Like what he loves most. God loves to show compassion to people in need. That's what God gets excited to do. God wakes up and he is excited to meet people's needs. He loves messy people. And that's awesome for me and I think for us, right? God loves messy, needy people. And he invites that into his life. And aren't you glad that God didn't look for a loophole or a shortcut for you? Aren't you glad that he never made that excuse, even though he could have? Even though when he was praying to his father, Jesus was praying and saying, God, is there any other way than the cross to get out of this? Is there any other way we can accomplish the big plan? No, there's not. He did it anyway. He said, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's not too much. It's not too much. I can stretch myself and extend myself to do that for them because I love them. And if you've never experienced that kind of excited love from God, it's available. That's very ready and available to you. And if that's a, a new thinking and a new perspective to you, man, you can engage that today. I encourage you to talk to someone about that if, if you don't want to talk to me about that. But until we actually personally understand this stuff, to be a person in need, to be a person abandoned, to be a person walked by. Until we personally understand that, you won't be stirred with passion to help others.
There's no way. You can't just like muster that up. You have to have been in that place so you want to give it to other people. And just even that fact, as I was thinking about it, I was like, wow. I've been reflecting on some seasons in my life where I felt those deep needs of abandonment and rejection and walked by. And I was thinking back to middle school, actually, <laughs> kind of far back. And I think every middle schooler goes through that, you know. It's, it's a weird stage, and you're kind of like not totally grown up, and you're just kind of like a larva, and everything's all messed up, and your hormones are crazy, and you're just trying to like figure out life. And um, really, I just felt like I got an extra dose of getting kind of kicked in the rear. And I was just extra strange. I mean, I'm this tall, funky kid, and I'm goofy. And I just began to develop all these subconscious conclusions. I would feel pain. I'd feel rejection. I'd feel abandoned. And they were internal. And I began to think things that just aren't true. But what are you supposed to do as a middle schooler? You're just a kid. What other conclusion can you come to than that there's something wrong with me? I don't have worth and value. I got to fix whatever's messed up. I'm hated. And to allow that to affect you for years and years and years and to see person after person walk by and walk by and give you a little kick while they walk by and inside you're just screaming, help me, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. And I think back, I think back to like when someone intervened. I think back specifically to someone who intervened. And it's like, wow. The way that that person showed love to me. They probably didn't even know they were doing it. To them, they're just doing what's normal to them. They're actually caring. They're actually just simply living out this. But the impact that I felt, the depth that I felt that need after being walked by over and over again and stepped on and feeling half dead and there's no hope, finally, someone actually gave me what I was looking for and it wasn't even the silver bullet. It was like, you just cared. You just cared. And those little investments, it's crazy. It was my youth pastor and after a while, just like, the fact that it led me to Christ. It led me to the fact that it's great what you're giving me, but even in a grander way, you can get it from him. And all of a sudden, I'm like, yes, that's what I want. And you know what's crazy? What that compelled me to do is I, I had this relationship with God and I had actually been loved and invested in by someone. You know what it compelled me to do? To see it in other middle schoolers and other high schoolers. And I could identify it and I said, you're going through that and you're going through that and I'm not gonna walk by you. And it actually began to compel in me this desire to work for the church and to like work with students. I mean, who wants to work with middle schoolers? But I did, I like saw it and I was like, I know what you're feeling and I know what you need and I can do something about it. And after I had experienced that personally, I wanted to hunt down those people in need and say, you don't have to feel that way anymore. I'm here for you, God's here for you. And I can only imagine what life would have been like if I wouldn't have had that impact. If I couldn't look back and say, someone cared. Someone cared. Can you imagine the ripple effect of that and how little that of an impact was, but it actually made all the difference. So that's what I want you to think about. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that? This is simple stuff, like in the sense of you don't have to fix everything. The guy who I'm talking about didn't fix everything. No, they showed care and compassion and you could be a part of someone's life that they would look back and be like, that made an impact on me. It's really more of an invitation to an opportunity than a guilt trip, right? It's exciting 
It's that we are people of God and we are people of love. And following after him, we begin to reach out to others. And I don't want you to miss out on that. I just don't want it for you. I don't want it for me. I don't want it for us. I don't want you to miss that opportunity because it's incredible. It's incredible. Do you know what would happen if you did this? You know what would happen is you would begin to see people's lives impacted by your influence because of your intervention their lives are different. And even in a grander way, as you just do those little things, God would show up and he would change their lives. It's incredible. And you know what else? You'd begin to see God's mercy and love in new and fresh ways. New and fresh ways. Ways that you've never seen it before because now you're actually doing what's at his very heart with someone else. You're his hands and feet. You might be the only one. I don't want you to miss out on that. It's an incredible feeling. So maybe as we've been going through this You've been thinking about someone, thinking about a coworker, you know, asking a lot of you. Thinking about a spouse. You guys live in the same house, but how can you feel so alone and insecure? It happens. Your kid who's acting out, right? There's probably a reason for that. I was that kid. A friend who's not really acting like a friend anymore. Or a relative. <laughs> Got a couple of those relatives, right? I would prefer not to be around you. What if you're in their life for a reason? And if you're bold enough, maybe write down one of those names. Write down the big one. Write it smaller. Write it big. I don't know. You don't have to share it with anyone. But you can do that. This week, you can do that. You can start becoming a person of love. And write down how you can actually help them. Maybe if you've been making excuses or shortcuts or loopholes, just like, Write those down and cross them out and say, I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Instead, I'm going to do this. This is what I can do. This is where I can start. You're not going to solve all their problems, but you can become a person of love. And I believe that you will begin to see God work in mighty ways in your life and in, theirs, in their life. You will see God work in and through you. It's incredible. So we're going to process some of this. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray for us.